From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Voters statewide are deciding on Proposition II. In short, the state collected more money than expected from new tobacco and nicotine taxes to pay for universal preschool. So what's to become of that additional money? By referring this measure to the voters, we ask them to affirm that commitment to universal preschool. I don't like that sleight of hand. I I just don't. Weigh the pros and cons with purplish. Then the second trial is underway in the death of Elijah McClain, stopped by police as he walked home from buying iced tea. Today, we hear from his mother, Shanine, who's been a consistent presence in the courtroom. The people that murdered Elijah that night, they didn't see him. They saw his skin color. They saw his differences, but they didn't see him. Every day, there are complex issues to decipher, from our changing climate to education to water rights and the economy. You want to understand the impacts and hear directly from decision makers and the people affected by those decisions. Because of CPR's and NPR's careful and thorough reporting, you know more about your community, state, nation, and world. And your financial support helps make it all possible. It's easy to give at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. The deadline to turn in your ballot is about two weeks away. Voters are deciding two statewide ballot measures. Today, we'll learn about Proposition II. Let's join public affairs reporter Benta Berkland with Purplish, CPR's podcast about politics and policy. In our previous episode, we spent nearly a half hour talking about Proposition HH, trying to explain what it does, how it got on your ballot, who's supporting it, and who's not. One thing I can tell you about this episode, it's going to be a lot shorter and hopefully less complicated. I hope so. (laughs) That's CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine who, it just occurred to me, Jenny, you are joining us on Purplish for the first time. That is true, and I am super excited. Well, we are very glad to have you. And you're here because you've been tracking the other thing that everyone's going to see on their ballot this fall, Proposition II. Yeah, that's right. So could you start off maybe by just reading what people will see on their ballots? Okay, here's the language. Without raising taxes, may the state retain and spend revenues from taxes on cigarettes, tobacco, and other nicotine products and maintain tax rates on cigarettes, tobacco, and other nicotine products and use these revenues to invest $23,650,000 to enhance the Voluntary Colorado Preschool Program and make it widely available for free instead of reducing these tax rates and refunding revenues to cigarette wholesalers, tobacco product distributors, nicotine products distributors, and other taxpayers for exceeding an estimate included in the ballot information booklet for Proposition EE. (laughs) Thank you, Jenny. That's a mouthful. And yeah, we just wanted to trial by fire your first episode and we make you read this language. Didn't stumble. (laughs) You sounded great. Can you explain it more simply, though? What does Proposition II do? Apparently, it doesn't raise taxes. Right. And this goes back to Proposition EE that voters passed three years ago. 
that raised taxes starting in 2021 on cigarettes and other nicotine and vaping products. So starting this year, the money raised from the tax pays for the state's new universal preschool program. And this is where Prop II comes in. Because that tax has raised about $23 million more than it was projected to, this year, Proposition II asks voters to let the state keep that extra $23 million in tax revenue for preschools instead of refunding it to tobacco wholesalers and distributors. And the reason this is necessary is because of Colorado's Constitution, specifically the Taxpayers' Bill of Rights. It requires that if voters approve a new tax and more revenue is collected over what was projected— then voters have to decide again what to do with that extra money. So state lawmakers put this question on this false ballot. Yeah, that's right. And I'll note that Prop EE, which, as I said, started all this, passed by a lot. About two-thirds of voters said yes for this tobacco increase. What's kind of interesting, though, is... I went back and looked at the bill that put Proposition II on the ballot to keep the additional money, and it was not bipartisan. All of the sponsors were Democrats, and the votes on the bill were pretty much party line. This is an important measure to uh, really, truly understand the will of the voters. They supported Proposition EE with a resounding vote from across this state, supporting universal preschool in their communities. Uh, by referring this measure to the voters, we ask them to affirm that commitment to universal preschool. I don't like that sleight of hand. I, I just don't. Um, I don't mind if we tell the voters, hey, we're going to tax you. Are you okay with this? And they say yes or no. If we say we're doing something for schools, yes or no. But when we overcollect, what's to stop us in the future from, from kind of doing business the same way? So given that Republican lawmakers don't feel the state should try to hold on to this additional tax revenue than what was projected, do the opponents have any organized opposition, an opposition campaign? No, but in the blue book, the arguments against it include the fact that voters already spoke about the level that they were comfortable with in 2020, the level of taxation. And so the extra tax expands it beyond what voters originally supported. And the guide also notes that this is a regressive tax, raising taxes on tobacco and nicotine products harms people suffering from addiction and using tobacco products who are disproportionately low income. Okay, and that's basically what we heard from Republicans. Right. And I should mention on the pro side, people supporting this measure, analysts note that there are decades of research showing that high quality preschool improves multiple outcomes throughout a child's life higher wages, higher graduation rates, fewer criminal convictions. Proponents also argue higher tax rates help deter people from smoking and using vaping tobacco products. Let's talk a little bit about EE, the underlying tax. It was a way for Colorado to raise the money needed to launch universal preschool. And of course, that's why you as our education reporter are paying close attention to this. Yes, I've been spending a lot of time lately covering the start of Universal Preschool Program. And starting this year, every family in the state with a four-year-old and some at-risk three-year-olds can get between 10 and 30 hours of free preschool a week. So 
So far, more than 38,000 four-year-olds and several thousand more three-year-olds are participating. The state estimates the program is saving families around $6,000 a year. So what happens if people vote against Proposition II? If they tell the state, look, the state cannot keep this extra tobacco tax money? If voters say no, the excess tax revenue would be refunded to tobacco and nicotine distributors, and the tax on those products would drop 11.5%. Again, if voters say yes, the tax rates will stay at their current levels, and that $23 million would go to preschools. And if that excess happens in future years, the money would also go to preschools. Do we have any idea what this additional $23, $24 million would mean for the preschool program? Yeah, I crunched the numbers, and that's about 7 to 8 percent of the total program's budget. And proponents of the measure say that extra tax revenue will allow thousands more children access to extra hours in preschool, particularly students with disabilities, children living in poverty, in foster care, or who are homeless. They're not providing details about how many families or hours this could translate into, but the funding for this program is pretty complicated, so maybe that's not so surprising. I know you've been covering the rollout of Universal Preschool, and how has it been going? This last year has been a wild ride. The good news is everyone seems united on the fact that thousands more families have access to free preschool. But overall, the rollout was pretty rocky. It had to be done super fast in under a year. School districts and some private providers report that hundreds of low-income or homeless families, families whose native language isn't English, were used to showing up at their school district and getting enrolled instantly. Under this new universal preschool program, they couldn't do that. So they were having to enroll online, is that right? That's right. It's a state-operated online system. Those families found this matching system confusing and bureaucratic. Because districts don't have direct access to the matching system, they reported hundreds of families either got lost in the system or were unable to enroll in schools by the start of the school year. And they also have serious issues that the system doesn't allow them to meet the needs of students with disabilities in the way that they're used to. These problems were so large that school districts filed a lawsuit against the state. Their bottom line is they want to help fix the system. The state, meantime, says it is working with providers to fix all these issues and things should be smoother next year. You said everyone's united that this is getting more children into preschool. But not every preschool is participating, right? Yes. Some religious preschools are unhappy because to qualify for the program, a school has to adhere to the state's anti-discrimination provisions. But some schools, like those run by the Catholic Archdiocese, have provisions around not employing openly LGBTQ staff because that doesn't conform with their religious views on sexuality and gender. And that disqualifies them from UPK. They've gone to court to try to strike down that restriction in the program. And there are also other families whose preschools, for whatever reason, decided not to enroll in universal preschool. And they've been frustrated that they either have to forego the support or switch programs. But it's important to keep in mind that both of these objections cover a very small number of schools and families compared to the nearly 50,000 families who are part of the universal preschool program at this point. Well, thanks, Jenny. A little bit shorter than our previous episode and maybe a little less complicated, but still lots of nuances here. And thanks for joining us for Purplish. You're welcome. 
Purplish with public affairs reporter Benton Berkland and education reporter Jenny Brundine. Listen to the episode about that other statewide ballot measure, HH, everywhere you get podcasts. And at CPR.org, we've put together a voter guide with charts and links to help you understand what you're voting on. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This month, millions of Coloradans will open their mailboxes and find a slim paper booklet with a blue cover. Packed with explanations about the state's endless ballot initiatives, the Blue Book has become a political tradition in Colorado. We have a 1956 booklet here that's in blue, um, and I, I think that was to make it distinguish. But why does Colorado create this unusual publication? The answer in the latest Colorado Wonders at CPR.org. A trial for the third officer charged in the death of Elijah McClain is well underway in Adams County. But McLean's mother, Shanine, is still grappling with the outcome of the first trial. In a split verdict, the jury found one officer guilty of lesser charges and acquitted the other. CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry spoke with Shanine McLean and will share some of that interview with us. Hi, Allison. Hi, Ryan. It's been, gosh, a little more than a week since those first verdicts were announced. How is Shanine feeling? Yeah, she's reeling. You know, she's a lot of emotions right now. She believes if her son, Elijah McLean, a 23-year-old black man, if the roles were reversed, if he had been a police officer that night encountering three white men on the street, that things would have been completely different. Elijah did everything right. Elijah should have been the police officer on the other on the other end of that. Because I guarantee you, had Elijah been the police officer the peace officer that did not uphold today's job, had Elijah been the policy enforcer that night, every last one of them would have got to go home with just a simple conversation. And just to give you, you know, the, the, the broad brush details of this case, Elijah was walking home after buying iced tea at a Shell gas station when he was stopped by officers in 2019. Someone had called police to report a suspicious person in the area. Within about eight seconds of being stopped, police had their hands on McLean and subdued him. Shanine believes it's clear why her son was stopped in the first place. The people that uh, murdered Elijah that night, they didn't see him. They saw his skin color. They saw his differences, but they didn't see him. They didn't hear him. All they heard was what they wanted to do to him that night. So I'm going to go to that courtroom. As many times as I can throughout all three trials, because they're going to see me, scars and all. I'm not going to make myself pretty for them people. They don't respect my life. They don't respect my son's life. My son was a working citizen in these here divided states of America. And they did not even value his contribution. But I guarantee you his clients did. His clients still speak highly of him because he made a difference in their life. You know, Elijah, just speaking of his contributions to society, was a massage therapist at Massage Envy. He had a lot of friends. Um, in fact, during the trials, we've heard testimony from people who worked with him who said he was extremely giving. He spent his lunch hours uh, playing music for animals at animal shelters. He ran a lot. He did a lot of, you know, jogging. He was a vegan um, and he had a pretty bright future. Even defense attorneys representing the police officers have said that. 
Allison, you were in the courtroom throughout that first trial. So was Shanine McLean, mm-hmm. as she suggested there. She, she has a spiritual connection to her son, even in death. She does have a connection with him. You know, she's told me she talks to him almost every day, and, and he's a comfort to her, even during this trial when it's been extremely difficult. Elijah told me not to worry. He told me not to worry when they first deliberated. Before they first deliberated, I was sitting on pins and needles, so to say. I was hanging on the edge of my seat. And then Elijah told me not to worry. And I was like, don't worry. Yeah, don't worry. Because this is not the final destination. Hmm. Safe to assume the split verdict caught her off guard? Yeah, it did catch her off guard, and it made her really angry. You know, we've, we were sitting outside of the courtroom when she walked out. She held her hand up in the air in a fist. Um, she was mad. You know, she was upset that Randy Rodima was convicted of criminally negligent homicide, which is a lesser charge than he was charged with initially, and third-degree assault. And, you know, his sentencing is in January, but both crimes are probation eligible, which means there is a small chance, given that he had no prior criminal record, that he won't face any jail time. And obviously, the other officer, Jason Rosenblatt, as we've reported on the show, was acquitted of all of his charges. There was so much evidence, I thought it was a slam dunk. I thought there was no way they was going to rule in favor of my son's murderers. That's exactly what they did. They gave him the lesser charge, giving him the opportunity to have a second chance at life. All of them, all of them are guilty of putting their hands on my son. They're all guilty. Shanine has struggled with how much people ask her how she's doing. My son was murdered by Aurora City employees. Um, And despite the diversity in Aurora, Colorado, None of the jury was of people that could relate to me. So one thing that is true is that this is America and it's not united. It's a theme that we've heard now several times from her, including the day of the verdict, these divided states of America. Shanine mm-hmm. McLean, I understand, reflected on what she experienced during that first trial. Mm-hmm. What did she tell you? She had some really unusual moments in the weeks of the trial and then also during the jury deliberations for those several days at the Adams County Justice Center in Brighton. You know, she sat in the front row most days behind the prosecutors. Usually a lawyer from the attorney general's office sat with her. At one point, she told me Rodima tried to hold the door open for her and she didn't let him because she said, quote, I refuse to allow him to show me how much of a gentleman he's not. She said, a little too late, a little too late. She also said once she went to the women's restroom to cry after some long body cam footage that she had to watch, and a family member of one of the defendants waited for her outside of the bathroom stall in the women's restroom and asked her if she could pray for her. That's their God. With all the races that live on this earth, there is no way we all serve the the same God. It's not possible. Or else they would treat people that look like me, people that look like my son, better. And they don't. They ignore their own humanity for their ego and their pride and their patriotism. Indeed, Shanine McLean had to relive the moments leading up to her son's death during the trial. 
What more did she share with you about that? You know, the body camera footage is 18 minute incident, really, in all total. But the body camera footage has just lasted hours and hours for her to have to watch over and over and over again. We had at one point 10 officers on the scene. They all had activated body cameras. So the prosecutors have played every angle Mm -hmm. and they've slowed it down and they've played it again and they've played it again and they've said, what have you heard? So she's had to watch this and it's extremely emotional for her. And I think one of the things that she's talked to me a lot about is how much Elijah McClain was appealing to their humanity, that at the very end of his life, you can hear him as they have detained him, shouting out, my name is Elijah McClain. I was just going home. and I'm an introvert. I don't eat meat. I don't do any fighting. I don't have a gun. That he was making these appeals to his humanity and that they weren't listening to him. And if they were listening to him, they didn't, they didn't care about it. I actually knew um, not that much more than everyone else. I watched my son's murder video over and over and over again so that I knew who did what to my son. So anyone who only scammed through it would of course be missing some vital information. Anyone who only saw 15 minutes from one uh, point of view instead of all of the points of views that were there also had a limited perspective as well. So I just took it upon myself after I was able to get through the video. I just kept watching it over and over again because I I knew it was important to know who did what to my son and what was the reason as to why they chose to murder him instead of allowing him to go home that night with just a simple conversation. A simple conversation um, is easy. Um, But when people hop out of their cars and they choose to be violent instead of courteous. When they choose to be hands-on instead of respecting other people's spaces, then it's always going to be a problem. You know, this has helped me understand that this is not just a pursuit of justice for her, but this is her learning in almost real time what happened to her son. Uh, as we said, she was a steady presence, Shanine McLean, in that first trial. Now this second trial underway, and a third for the two paramedics who gave Elijah McLean ketamine after he was taken down by police. And I know that, you know, she has plans to attend these trials. She does. She's got obligations at home, like most of us do, so she can't go every day. Some days I think she's just pure exhausted Mm. from it all, from the body camera footage, from having to kind of be the center of attention, you know, because it's just kind of her. Um, And sometimes advocates show up in the courtroom. They want to talk to her during the breaks and stuff. Not that she doesn't welcome any words of comfort, but it's still it's a lot to be sort of in the center of all day long. Um, But she feels like it's her job. It's her duty to show up. They're going to see my black face and they're going to see me looking right at them in their face to see if they have a shred of humanity. Just like my son was pleading to their humanity, I look my son's murderers in their face. They have no remorse. They have no regret. They have no guilt for what they did. They just mad that their own body cam videos caught them. And even though she's been so exhausted, she does always say to me, sitting in trial is, is, quote, easy compared to what Elijah went through. Allison, thank you for sharing the interview. You're welcome, Ryan.
CPR Justice reporter Allison Sherry sharing her conversation with Shanine McLean, whose son Elijah died in 2019 after being stopped by Aurora police. A second trial in the case resumes tomorrow. And Colorado Matters continues in this next half hour. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. They didn't want the mural there, and they asked me to paint over it. And I refused to do it, so I lost my job. Check out Off the Walls, a new podcast about Denver's street art. Take this white paint, and I want you to use it to indicate for us your experience with white supremacy in America. Off the Walls on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. With support from Credit Union of Colorado. When it comes to water, Lorelei Cloud says tribes, including the Southern Ute, don't just use it, they protect it, treating water with reverence. Cloud is the first Native American on the Colorado Water Conservation Board. She spoke with our Western Slope producer, Tom Hess, in August. Can you give us a sense for how the history of the Southern Ute intersects with the water challenges you're working on today? So as you know, tribal history is very important within within the United States because it's tied to the history of this country and it's also tied to the water, and particularly in the Colorado River Basin where a lot of this conversation is happening. For the Ute people, the Southern Ute people particularly, the Ute people have been the longest and oldest continuous inhabitant of what is now known as the state of Colorado. Our creation story started in the Rocky Mountains. We don't have a migration story like like, no other tribes do. My historical area is encompassed pretty much the entire state of Colorado, a large portion of Utah, the upper portions of Arizona and New Mexico. And we traveled with our seasons. We gathered our foods and our medicines throughout this area. And we've always had the principles of taking care of ourselves and our environments. Those two have always been a balance and be with each other. And through time, when the Europeans came over, my area shrunk. We ended up on reservations. We were located into where my reservation is at currently. And we are in the southwest corner of the state. My reservation currently borders the Ute Mountain Ute Reservation, the Hickory Apache Nation, and the state of New Mexico. But we are in the state of Colorado. It encompasses now about 110 miles in length and about 15 miles wide. And so now, you know, you people, we come from different bands of of Utes. And my band that's on my reservation is the Malachi Compulta Bands of Utes. And so that's a, a general history of where the tribe is at. And it plays a big part of why we're wanting to be so much involved in the decision-making of what's going on in the Colorado River Basin. And your newest role is on the Colorado Water Conservation Board. You were appointed in March, I believe. What has that experience been like? It has been fantastic so far. It aligns closely a lot with history, youth principles, because the Colorado Water Conservation Board, their mission is to conserve, protect, and develop and manage Colorado's water for present and future generations. And honestly, that's not much different than what we believe as Ute people. I am currently representing the San Miguel, Dolores, and Fallon Basin, which covers both the Southern Ute and Ute Mountain Ute Reservations, as well as 10 counties. 
I am the first Native American to join this board since the creation in 1937, which is really, it's a fantastic opportunity, but at the same time, it, it's a little bit overwhelming because I would have hoped that more Native people would have a voice at that level. And as you know, that just hasn't happened because of inclusion within the basin as far as policy makings. And I wanted to ask about that. Historically, tribes have been left out of the process of negotiating these Colorado River issues. Do you feel that's going to be different this time around? I'm hopeful that we are going to be included in those conversations. There has been um, a lot of effort going forward historically in making sure that tribes are included in those broader conversations. There currently is still no formal written documents or no formal process for tribes to be included in those conversations. The Colorado River Compact was created in 1922. It wasn't until 1924 that Native Americans became citizens of this country. And so with that and, and our tribal history, I think that plays a big part in why we were not part of those conversations at the very beginning. And so now being included in those conversations is going to be critical. And because we know that we are sovereign and for the federal government and the Bureau of Reclamation and the Upper Colorado River Commission to recognize tribes as sovereigns and having those government-to-government um, discussions when it comes to water, I think is, is critical. Last fall, uh, we learned that Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Wyoming, for the first time, began formal negotiations with tribal governments over water. How is this going to affect the broader water conversation now that tribes are formally being brought into discussions that they've so long been left out of? Um, I think it's going to have a positive impact. You know, when you talk about these state officials finally having conversations with tribes, again, it's been historical. We've been meeting with the Upper Colorado River Commission, They're the commissioners from each one of those states, and all, all the tribe, the six tribes in the Upper Basin. We've been meeting now for a year. We've had some really good conversations, but we've had to get through a lot of tough conversations to get to that point. And if I think that since these state officials were so willing to take that on, we're going to make a, a really big impact for not just for, I'm hoping for the Colorado River Basin, not just for the Upper Basin, because it shows that there are four states that are are willing and able to work with tribes in their respective areas. And I'm hoping that that creates a leeway for other tribes, other states, particularly in the lower basin, to find ways to work together and have positive outcomes. Again, it's going to be, I think it's going to be a positive outcome. When you stand together as a group, as a collective, even though you may not see eye to eye or agree with decisions or, or the the understanding from where somebody is coming from, if you can put that aside and create the trust that's very much needed, we can do just about anything. And I think we all have the same same line train of protecting the river and making sure that all of the water users have the water that they need. What else needs to change to make sure we're getting more tribal voices involved in these water conversations? Honestly, it's the willingness to have the conversation. And sometimes there's not a willingness. There's a lot of standoffish, 
feeling. And sometimes I believe that it's fearing that tribes may have uh, be, be using their water. And I think it's also, it's, it's a mind frame that we have to, we have to overcome because just like with, with my tribe, my tribe may not be seen as the water user that we are. We're seen as uh, agriculture, um, uh, you know, farmers and municipalities. We're using it for industrial uses, but we're also using it for our traditional practices. Water is the element of life. It is the essence of life. And when you believe that and you believe that water is there, um, it's from creator. And we're, we're meant to take care of it and to be the caretakers of it. And when we come from that standpoint, we know that water means more to us than just dollar signs or that it's going to water our crops. There's more to it. There's a spiritual aspect to that. Again, we've been here. Creator made this world for all of us. And that's something that we believe as you people. And caring for that environment, we know that it's going to take care of us as well, too. We've always put the environment sometimes ahead of our own needs it has a spiritual aspect to it because everything has a spirit to it the water has a spirit to it all the green things that we see the trees the grasses those also have spirits to it and we have, and we're here to take care of those things and so when if you can get others to think that way as well too i think we can think of our environment in a different manner and provide for it in a way that is going to be sustainable for future generations you were discussing the multiple meanings that water has to the Southern Ute. When it comes to tribal water rights, what do most people not understand? What are we getting wrong? Well, the first assumption, again, is that most tribes are considered just a regular water user. We're more than that. We have a cultural aspect to that. When you use your water in, in, in a traditional manner, like we use our water in, in ceremonies, we pray with our water. We pray with our water in the mornings when we wake up. And it holds a special value in our lives. And so when we think about those things, we're more than just a water user. We're a water protector. We've always been water protectors since we've been here. In addition to that, you know, we have to think about tribes being sovereign. We hold unique federal water rights which are senior and protected. Earlier this summer, the Supreme Court ruled that the federal government had no affirmative duty to help secure Navajo Nation water rights. What did you make of that? So that case is very unique because the Supreme Court held that the Navajo Nation had no rights to enforce the Department of Interior's trust duty to protect its water rights. But the court also continued to weaken the federal government's trust responsibility to tribes. That decision was very disheartening and disappointing, um, considering the administration has pledged to support tribal rights. But I also want to clarify that we don't believe the decision is directly applies to the Southern Ute tribe because our water rights have been quantified pursuant a congressionally approved water settlement. But nonetheless, we will continue to protect and preserve our water rights. You mentioned that you're the first tribal member on this board. Did it surprise you to be the first in this position? Yes and no. I thought there would have been a little bit more history to the board and and water within the state of Colorado. But given the history of the Colorado River Basin and the exclusion of tribal voices, 
in all those conversations, there's not been a tribal voice at that, that level of policymaking. And so that was something that all tribes are fighting for, is to have a seat in that policymaking. How do the senior water rights of tribes balance with overuse downstream? Well, you know, that is a major concern. And I think it's a major concern for most tribes. Because most tribes don't have the capacity or the infrastructure, basically, to put their water to use. And in order to protect tribal water rights, you have to develop the water. And because a lot of the water hasn't been developed, it's been unused. And so that unused tribal water ends up becoming system water. And with that system water, now everybody else downstream gets to use that water. And they feel that, that is, that's their obligation. But once that water is put to use, there will be less water for other users because these other users that have been using that water for free are going to feel those effects. And so I think that is a big fear of tribes using their water and why there's so much resistance to tribes having a seat at the, at the policymaking table. Tribes have been at a disadvantage and disenfranchised for a very long time. And now that because of the tribal water study that came out in 2018, 2019, it showed that 10 tribes out of 30 tribes in the entire basin have allocations up to 25% of the entire river. And for you to leave that amount of water, of water users out of the conversations, that's a big impact when you're starting to develop water within the basin. But out of those 10 tribes, some of those tribes still don't have their water settled or quantified. The other tribes in the basin also don't. So that 25% honestly could go up. And I'm not sure what that percentage would be. And I'm not going to now take a guess at, at that. But that's a big impact of what you're looking at as far as allocation of the river and why the river is so over allocated, not just the hydrology, but it's the over allocation that part of the quandary that we're trying to deal with within the river basin and trying to save it. You know, you mentioned the infrastructure or lack thereof for some tribal communities to develop those water resources. Obviously, there's a lot of federal money around right now for water projects. Are you seeing any of that on Southern Ute lands? Funding is very critical and needed. I know that my tribe really needs the funding to repair and maintain our existing infrastructure, which is uh, most likely the, we, we have a couple, but the primary irrigation project is, is a big, big one for us. In addition, my tribe needs funding to develop and construct new water delivery systems and infrastructure because we want to work when we fully plan to develop our water. You know, going back to the reliance of the downstream users, that plays a part, I think, in a lot of the conversations that we deal with as far as tribes putting their water to use and the, and the infrastructure. And so sometimes it's really hard for tribes to gain the, the money and the, the funding that they need to develop those infrastructures because sometimes they need uh, these projects to be shovel-ready and tribes don't have the capacity even to get grant writers or um, their staff that they need to get the plans together to have a shovel-ready project. You mentioned that irrigation project that was a priority. Can you tell us more about that? Our Pine River Irrigation Project was developed and created in the early 1900s. This is a federal project. It is owned and operated by the Bureau of Indian Affairs. And they put it in, in place in hopes that we would become farmers and irrigators. 
But since the 1960s, they have not maintained this infrastructure. So again, back to my reservation, it, it's 110 miles long, 75 miles wide. So in this little strip of land, there's 175 miles of canals. So out of the, this canal system, only 25% of this canal system is actually workable. And so when you think about how much is not working, that's a failure of the trust responsibility. And so that's one, one infrastructure that we have and we're trying to get the funding for in order to fix it so that we can put our water to use. And that must be tens of millions of dollars in needs. The last estimate a few years ago, I believe, was at $70 million. And so with inflation and, you know, the environment that we're working in now, I'm pretty sure that's probably double. Yeah. Zooming out a bit, what specific water conversation do you think is going to be the most difficult to grapple with going forward? I believe it's going to be the reduction in non-tribal and downstream water users so that tribes can develop their water resources in their communities. That, I think, is always going to be a contention point within the basin. But as soon as we can, you know, get over the, the fear and help everybody in the basin, I think that's going to be where we start to develop positive outcomes of what's going to happen in the basin. I know this is the million-dollar question, but how do you go about alleviating uh, downstream users' concerns about that? I think it's just going to be having conversations with them. Because that's the only way you're going to be able to build trust. And it's not just with the downstream users, but it's with tribes as well, too. Everybody has a stake in the river. And there's a lot of mistrust right now that has built up for decades in the basin. And trust is going to be the only way that we're going to fix that. So if you can start building trust and building relationships with not just tribes, but the community, that's a, a good foundation to start to build a positive relationship with everybody in the basin to find a positive solution. I'll get you out of here on this. You've been on the State Water Conservation Board for a few months now. Are you more or less hopeful about our broader ability to tackle these water issues? You know, I'm actually pretty optimistic about our future. So with that, I just want you to all to learn about the Southern Ute Tribe we have a, a website that has a lot of our history of the Southern Utes and the Ute people in general. And you can follow the Southern Ute tribe on Facebook and the Tribal Council. We have a, a Tribal Council also has a Facebook and an Instagram page and a Twitter. But also learning about your tribes in your respective areas. Every tribe is going to be different. And so you can't generalize tribes or Native Americans. You have to find out what each one is dealing with and how and why they're dealing with those situations. And on an everyday level, be conscious of your water use. Adopt practices that reduce your water. Pray for your water. Take care of your water. Take care of your environment. Talking about the Water Conservation Board, this board meets throughout the year. And these meetings are open to the public. And so if you want to get some more information Right, you can sign up for the emails to get updates on the water issues. The Colorado Water Conservation Board has its own website, and you can get the information there and sign up for those emails. Laura Lycloud, thanks for joining us. You're welcome. This has been good. Laura Lycloud is Southern Ute. She's the first Indigenous member appointed to the Colorado Water Conservation Board since its creation in 1937. Cloud spoke with my colleague Tom Hess in August. 
A new study from Colorado researchers shows that flying insects struggle to adapt to a warmer climate. Why? We asked CPR climate and environment reporter Molly Cruz for insight. For many animals, migrating to higher elevations where the temperature is cooler has been their best chance for survival when adapting to climate change. But this new study led by Dr. Michael Moore shows that this escape route may be too challenging for flying insects. One of the biggest reasons is that high elevation environments aren't just colder. Think about if you were to go on top of a ski lift on top of a mountain, you may experience trouble breathing, it's windier, your hat may blow off, and altitude sickness. That's typically caused by gaining altitude way too rapidly. So flying insects experience the same sort of thing. They also require a lot more oxygen than non-flying insects. It's a lot harder for them to get the oxygen at higher altitudes, where there's lower atmospheric pressure. Molly adds, because the wind is stronger at higher elevations, it makes it harder for insects to fly. The study found specific insects in Colorado have trouble adjusting. Species like the American bumblebee, the central bumblebee, along with a few different butterfly species like the morning cloak and the cloudless sulfur butterfly are all having a really hard time migrating to higher elevations. Molly Cruz from CPR's climate and environment team. All this could affect pollination and biodiversity. Researchers hope so-called wildlife corridors could help the insects, creating bug-friendly habitats at different elevations so they can adapt gradually. Another reason to plant a pollinator-friendly yard next spring. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The leaves are turning, the pumpkins are ripening, and the local stores are stocking up on candy. Perhaps your neighbors have a 12-foot skeleton in their yard, or you are the neighbor supplying the scares. I'm CPR's Lauren Antonoff-Hart. Come to CPR.org for our growing list of activities across the state. Scary shopping, guided ghost tours, Dia de los Muertos celebrations, harvest festivals, and more. Get inspired at CPR.org. Colorado Cowboy J.C. Trujillo is about to be inducted into the National Rodeo Hall of Fame, and he shared his story with CPR Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg. At 75 years old, J.C. Trujillo can still feel that moment. He became a rodeo cowboy. I remember it clear as day. His first calf riding competition for kids. He was six. I was scared as you could be to have to get on one of those calves, you know. End up uh, hanging on the side, but I made the whistle. And got second place. I won $10.80, and by golly, I thought I'd never see a poor day. Decades later, he would use rodeo winnings to buy this 50-acre spread on a scenic dirt road, more than an hour out of Steamboat Springs. He and his wife, Margot spend much of their year here. While Trujillo still rides a horse every day, his 4x4 makes for quicker travel. But yeah, the cowboy lifestyle's definitely got a little more modern, I guess. He steps out in his straw cowboy hat, a denim western shirt with his tiny initials on the front. You never get your eyes completely full of this kind of country. A vista of mountains thick with trees so brightly illuminated by sunlight that their golden leaves look like they're on fire. 
I guess I have to say everything that I have in one way or the other came from the rodeo business. Back down the hill, a tiny dog named Hito guards the old bunkhouse and log cabin home that was once a schoolhouse. I was born and raised in the western way of life. In Arizona, the son of a ranch cowboy and a mother who was nervous about him competing in rodeo, but always supported him. They were the ones that paid the entry fees for my brother and I to go to these junior rodeos and bought a horses and bought horse trailers. Trujillo's rodeo career advanced through college. After graduating from Arizona State University, he considered becoming a teacher. But I went to riding bareback horses and never looked back. When he hit the pro circuit in the early 70s, Trujillo ended up 17th in the world. Trujillo's going to show us that aggressive attitude. He quickly made it to the national finals and would for more than a decade. It was a lifetime goal of mine and dream to become a world champion. In 1980, the same year his first daughter was born, he got close until a horse bucked him off in competition. But then not counting J.C. out. That lit a fire in him. So I rodeoed hard that next year again, and uh, in 1981, I won the world's championship in the bareback riding. From Steamboat Springs, Colorado, the 1981 world champion bareback rider, J.C. Trujillo. How do you feel? Trujillo knew his time in rodeo would not last forever. It's a hard life, he says, going to more than 100 rodeos a year. You're driving, flying, hitchhiking, doing whatever you can do to get to a rodeo. His wife and daughters needed him to be home more. And in 1983, he got a break, courtesy of a horse. Great big old horse. They called him Tombstone. And he drugged me around. I broke some ribs, punctured a lung, dislocated my right knee. But other than that, I was okay. A few years later, after entering the national finals arena one last time, Thought it was time to hang her up. This year, almost four decades later, he got word he'd soon be inducted into the National Cowboy Hall of Fame. With all my heroes, you know, unbelievable. There is that trope of the solitary cowboy. But Trujillo did not get here alone. My mom and dad, I have to give a giant amount of credit for my success in the rodeo business. I would get a little emotional sometimes on that. (laughs) Trujillo says that when he's inducted in November, he knows they'll be looking down with big smiles. The same way he looks at his grandkids as they compete in rodeo. Two have already turned pro. I'm Stina Sieg, CPR News. And that is Colorado Matters for today. I'm Ryan Warner, here with CPR News and KRCC. KRCC.